Welcome back, listeners, to another edition of Matt Goes to the Movies. Thanks for being here with us today. And the multiverse rolls on as Spider-Man, the Spider-Man marathon continues here. Uh, we have made it to Spider-Man 3. You know, I've said before I couldn't undertake this project without some help, but boy, I really need some help for this movie to to talk about it. So Rob is back once again. Listeners, by now you know him very well, but Rob, welcome back. And I, I think we got a doozy on our hands here. Yeah, uh, buckle up. It's about to get real. Um, so... <laughs> so- Here's here's kind of just like a funny thing about about uh, uh, guests appearing on the show. Sometimes um, I get the opportunity to go back and and rewatch stuff that I haven't seen in a while, and just because of the nature of just you know being a uh, full time you know working full time and having three kids and and trying to maintain other relationships and things like that, you know so you know I I don't sit down often and just rewatch a movie from start to finish. Uh, a lot of times I, you know, I catch 20 minutes on a lunch break or, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes here or there. And there's been multiple times where you've picked a movie that's actually kind of bad. And I remember it being kind of bad mm-hmm. and I'll sit down and I'll start watching it and I'll get, and I'll kind of start questioning myself. Like, is this, did I make a mistake? Is this actually bad? Because I remember when we did uh, Matrix Reloaded, and we both came away from that going, "I think we, I think we were harder on this movie than we needed to be." And I kind of think we did the same thing with Watchmen. Now that I'm kind of thinking about that, so I yeah. try to give, I try to give everything it's it's fresh opportunity, it's new lens to to look through it, and it was kind of like that with uh, Pirates Four. And I, I remember starting the movie off and the movie starts off fun. Uh, and this movie kind of starts off not terrible. And I start realizing, so I, you know, I, I get 20 minutes in or I get, you know, maybe 30 minutes here and there. And there's, you know, some good scenes and things like that. And I kind of start going to myself, like, have I, have I screwed up and, and talked crap about this movie in ways that I shouldn't have? And you kind of start questioning yourself when, when that's how you're interacting with the movie. And then emo Peter hits and you realize, nope, I was right. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I think it starts way before that, but I, I, I won't get any further into it because that'll be a spoiler section. So before we get into any spoilers or, you know, our, our spoiler free recap of the movie, I would like to point out, cause once again, we're getting interaction on the social media pages. I asked a couple of questions on the Instagram. Um, I actually said, um, is emo Peter Parker as bad as you remember? And at the, <laughs> so, um, at the basement binge, which listeners should know, uh, Harrison, who, you know, has the basement binge. Unfortunately, you know, he wasn't able to be here for this one. We're fingers crossed here. Uh, he is going to be able to join us for the amazing Spider-Man. Um, he actually said, no, he's better. So I, I don't know if Harrison hit his head when he answered that question. Mm. <laughs> um, but also too, at Westward media, uh, 1217 responded with, no, I can just have fun with the madness and dance to the music. Um, so I, I have some varying thoughts on that. And again, I am far be it from me to sit here and actually and judge their response. Uh, more so joking. I, I have some, some thoughts on how they portrayed that. Um, 
Also, the Westward Media, I asked, would you have liked to have seen Spider-Man 4? Uh, he said more than anything in the world, he thought the plot was really good, something that we can go into towards the end of this episode. And also one question was, what is the worst part about Spider-Man 3? Um, a lot of the answers were that it's overstuffed. And at Westward Media 1217 also said the worst part is specifically Topher Grace as Eddie Brock. So hmm. again, you know, thank you so hmm. much for listeners actually interacting with the show, checking out the Facebook polls, the Instagram polls. It's been a lot of fun to just kind of share those responses. But Rob, I think we can get into some of that with our first segment here at Matt goes to the movies, which is the watch rating. And inside this segment, we talk about how watchable is this movie for a rewatch? Is it high? Is it medium or is it low? And in this section, when we give our rating, this is where we're going to do our spoiler free recap of why we would rate it this way. So Rob, I'm going to let you go first. And where does this movie rank for you now that we've both watched it again? Um, Cause I know I have some pretty particular feelings on whether or not this is rewatchable. Yeah. I, of the Sam Raimi trilogy, this is definitely the film I've seen the least uh, prior to this watch through. I've maybe seen it. I haven't seen it more than three times prior to this. I, I know that for sure. Um, I was, I was prepared to hate it. I started to like it a little bit more. And I think when you, and Harrison does this on his show where he just binge his whole series. And I think it's, it's an interesting way to watch films that weren't made this way necessarily where, where everything, you know, you, you kind of see the, the development of some of these things. If you decide you're going to do a, a trilogy of these, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are checking these out again with, uh, with certainly a lot of crossover expected in, uh, in No Way Home, um, there are some things that you kind of get to enjoy from the first two that follow through to the third. Um, it's maybe not as bad as I remember it. The parts that are bad are really bad, uh, like objectionably bad. Um, the parts that actually work do still really work in this movie. Um, I was prepared to give this a very low rewatchability rating. It's, it's on the lower end of medium. Um, there's, this is one of those ones that I think you kind of put on while you're doing housework or you just want some noise on in the background, you tune in for the scenes you like, you tune out and, and actually, you know, load the dishwasher when, when certain scenes that are just deplorable and terrible are on and, or, you, you know, you go change the laundry over, you know, at the jazz club scene, uh, and then you come back for, for some of the better stuff. Okay, that's that's interesting because I am going to say that, you know, during this rewatch, I had a certain perspective on it. I could sit there and I could laugh at just how much, in my opinion, this movie missed the boat. Way back when, when this movie came out, it was maddening to me how much this movie missed the boat because it was so fresh at the time of oh my God, you know, this is, you know, Spider-Man 3, we're getting the symbiote, the, you know, this looks unbelievable. You know, the trailer, when they first showed uh, Venom, I was like, oh man, I remember that got a lot of buzz. 
but then you see the movie and to me it was like it's such a misstep that it was so frustrating and so aggravating now when i watch it back i could sit there and i could kind of laugh and go <laughs> it's really funny how they managed to like just miss the boat entirely but with that being said for me watching this back number 1 there is at the time a lot of the reviews talk about how well the fights are and the CGI, I think watching this movie back, the CGI in this movie is absolutely horrendous, um, especially some of the fights, especially the one towards the end. And there's really, to me, some logistical time gaps in this movie that do not make sense that I'll get into more. So for me... Um, this movie is low on the watch rating where I don't see a reason for me to like ever really watch this movie again. Like I can laugh about the fact that it's messed up and it wasn't, you know what it was supposed to be. And certainly there's been things that came out that Raimi was really upset about studio interference. But to me, this is definitely it's low. I don't see a reason to rewatch this. I feel like I would skip it just because it's not one of those to me. It's not a Batman and Robin. It's not a daredevil. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's not one of those ones where it's like, eh, this is bad, but like, it's funny and I can laugh bad to me. It's just like, no, like this is one of the ones that like you're supposed to be good. And it's kind of, I hate to say the word like unforgivable, but to me it's, it's lost the charm to be like, yeah, I can watch it and and enjoy certain parts, which is sad because, uh, Rob, I do agree. There's some things that I will talk about that there's a couple of things in this movie that like actually really, really work. So um, it, it's it's disappointing that I have it so low, but that's just, you know, how I feel about that. So anything else okay. that you wanted to add? You know, honestly, you know, thinking about a watch rating, if you if you take this movie um, just on its own, it it exists on its own. Um, yes, low watch rating, sure. If you take this movie and you are using this, you know, the the third the third part of the trilogy, you've watched the first two, and you you can sort of appreciate the parts of the first two that work really well that that take time to build to get to the third one that's seeing the payoff of some of those things i think is is what gives to me makes this kind of a that that medium low um and i don't know necessarily that if it's been several years since you've seen this movie um and you haven't seen the second one or the first one somewhat recently it would be very easy to say super low rating um but I think sometimes, you know, get doing a whole run through like we just did. Um, for me, I appreciate some of the things that that I do like about this. And look, am I going to just on my own accord be like, hey, I got nothing to do. I'm going to put on Spider-Man 3. Um, I would have to be completely out of things to do. Like I, I, would, <laughs> I would have to have like an unbelievable list of things that I have already done and don't feel like doing it again before I would get to let's watch Spider-Man three. So take that for what that's worth. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, again, that is a very valid point. If you're watching this, let's say you're binging it 
and you're going through the trilogy much like you mentioned like our friend harrison you know the the basement binge is about binging a series you know i i think there's a lot of merit to what you said as if you were just picking like oh i want to watch one of the original three spider-man movies i i just can't imagine this would be the one that i would pick to throw back on so um moving past that we're going to get into the next segment of the show. It is called Popcorn Time. And Popcorn Time is a breakdown of the movie, its main characters, its themes, relatable message that we have, also talking about our favorite part of the movie, favorite character, least favorite character, so on and so forth. So, Rob, I want to read you a quick summary of the hmm. plot of this movie because this is where the movie automatically loses me right off the bat. So here's here is a word-for-word description of the plot. A year after Otto Octavius's demise, Peter Parker plans to propose to Mary Jane Watson, who has made her Broadway musical debut. Like, okay, that is part of the plot. And here's where I'm lost immediately. Rob, a year after Otto Octavius's demise... Here's my question to you and to anybody that's listening to this episode, please feel free to chime in on this because to me, this is just inexcusable. What the hell has Harry been doing for a year? Apparently he learned science. Like, cause he built all that stuff like, on his own. He was a poor student in school, barely graduated. And like, somehow overnight he learned how to do science. Yeah, like he has been brewing for a year over his father's death. I guess, yeah, like building the glider and everything else in between. But again, what has his butler been doing in the year? Because I know everybody loves to make fun of this point, but like it's been a year since his father died and Harry and Peter haven't talked. One of the very first scenes is Peter running up to Harry about MJ's play, and he's like, I need to talk to you. You, you guys haven't talked. Like, <laughs> you haven't gotten together in a year? You, I'm just baffled by Harry's like, Spider-Man must pay. Mm, I, I gotta run off to summer camp or, uh, again, like... I'm so baffled by the fact that this movie is a year after Spider-Man two. Um, maybe talk me off the ledge here. No, you're not wrong about any of that. I'll tell you one of the things that sort of struck me on this, on this rewatch that was sort of strange was that. So Peter is shared with MJ that he's Spider-Man. Okay, great. Um, it doesn't appear that he was truthful about all of the green goblin stuff. Yeah. And I kind of feel like as often as she gets kidnapped, as often as she is put in harm's way, I feel like it would be important for her to know all of those details. Like I, what, why does she not know those details? Like wh- how does that protect her? Like she needs to know that Harry wants to kill him. Like how, how would that not, Oh, you guys don't seem to talk anymore. <laughs> like what? Right. And let's not forget the, oh, it's complicated. Like, give me a break. Yeah, I just don't buy that. Um, That to me just seemed like poor screenwriting. Yeah, it's not more complicated than her knowing you're Spider-Man. Like, it's not. 
Yeah. Um, there's, there's just some more examples of just kind of, you know, one of the things I hate most is just lazy screenwriting and it's, it's tension and conflict for the sake of moving the plot forward that when you actually stop and ask a few questions, much like you and I are doing right now, it holds up to exactly zero scrutiny. Yeah, no, absolutely. And here's what I'll say too, because I a hundred percent agree with you. I was watching this movie and I'm about 20 to 25 minutes in and I'm like, you know, logical gaps aside, I'm like, well, just at face value, boy, this movie actually starts off pretty strong. Like, yeah, you see what I mean, I, right? Like we get a yeah. spidey fight right towards the beginning. You, um, you know, we get some, we get some kind of cool stuff. Um, we do get uh, Marco and his ex having this conversation. And once again, the dialogue, it's not improved <laughs> across three films. The dialogue in the, in this series is still a, a, an abomination. Rob, just remember, I, I, I'm not a bad guy. I just had bad luck. Like, sure. <laughs> Who talks like that? Like, Who sure. Talks like that. You know, I. You, Did you, a bot write this movie? Like, you, you could, you could have killed a man. It wasn't like that. What was it like? And <laughs> please, please, let's get into the. You know. It, who, they have to, oh, this is actually your uncle's killer. We had this information for two years as he confessed in prison, but never thought to tell you until now because, I don't know, are you, are they afraid that he's going to, like, he's, are, are they afraid that he's going to come back and kill Peter and Aunt May? Like, if you had this information two years ago that he confessed it in jail, what... Why didn't you do anything about it? Right. Why didn't you do anything? Like, why wouldn't he go on a new trial? Because he's in jail for armed robbery. If he confessed in jail, like, wouldn't he, like, wouldn't he go on a new trial for murder? Uh, Immediately. And here's the, here's the thing that really stuck out to me as weird. So the cop says they have tied Marco to the Ben Parker murder. He says that to another police officer might've even been captain Stacy. I don't remember, but he says that to somebody as though like that would mean something like it's New York. There's hundreds (laughs) of people every year that get killed. Ben Parker, who, what, why does that name mean anything? Oh, it means something to us, the audience, but to the character you're speaking to, ah, yes, the Ben Parker murder. I remember it like it was yesterday. Right. I remember all the details of that one. Like that one really stuck. What? Like that, that was, I don't know. I, I, I didn't like that at all. And I guess let's just go ahead and get right into it. What is really the benefit of retconning uncle Ben's killer to be Sandman? It, to me, it's, it changes so much about the core of Peter and what sets him on this path. It, it would almost be like finding out Thomas and Martha Wayne weren't actually killed by a criminal in the alley. Like they just had heart attacks simultaneously and both died next to a guy who happened to be walking around with a gun in his hand. Right. Like that's, it completely changes the character and what sets him in motion and, and his motivations. Like it, it changed and it and I hate it. And I don't I don't understand what the point was because Sandman's already a bad guy. Like we get it. Um 
how did that make him a better villain and how did that enhance the storytelling for this third movie or the series as a whole? Right. And I think here's my perception on it. You do that because it causes Peter's rage and anger, which the symbiote, which shows up in this movie, um, it uses itself to latch onto Peter at that moment because um, it was chilling in his room for two and a half days, just doing nothing. Um, and then finally, as Peter's having a wet dream, for Christ's sakes, the sequence is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it, like attaches himself to Peter. Um, so, sorry, listeners, if you can't tell, I'm I'm not a fan of this movie. Um, <laughs> but here's Rob. I want to propose this to you because here's what I've thought all the time about Spider-Man Three and rewatching this now. A trailer for Spider-Man Three. There's a, a, what I feel is an iconic shot with the with the theme playing from the movie. He is hanging upside down in front of like a skyscraper building. It's all glass windows. And the suit that we see is the black Spider-Man suit. And the suit that's in the reflection is his red and blue suit. And I think Marco is is switched to help tie Peter's anger into the symbiote connecting to him. But to me, how great would it be that, to me, Peter doesn't know that this suit and this symbiote has attached itself to him. As he's Spider-Man, when he sees himself, he sees himself as the red and blue Spider-Man. Everybody else around him, though, sees that he has a new suit. And he doesn't. He struggles with the fact of why he's having this change. And he kind of has that. He doesn't understand, you know, why does his hair change to black all of a sudden? Like, And he has gyrating hip dance moves. But to me, it would have been a better struggle if he never sees that this new suit is present for him. I, I just feel like that would have been a better route that he still sees himself as Spider-Man. I think that's um, a really compelling idea. I think that could have made for a better story. Um, I'm going to throw you another idea to see if you think this would have made this movie better. What if there was no symbiote in this movie. Well, what do we need venom for in this movie? And I feel like he's included almost specifically because of fan pressure, because the first two movies, everybody enjoyed at the time. Uh, everybody loved it. Sam Raimi had kind of said he was only going to stick to like golden age villains when everybody under the sun was clamoring for venom. They were screaming for venom. I was screaming for venom because I love the character. He's just fun. You know, I have like two venom t-shirts in my closet, you know, like it, it's a character that we all like. And I feel almost like he was added out of fan pressure more so than he actually needed to be there. I mean, when you think about, we've got three different villains in this movie. We have new green goblin, we have Sandman and we have venom. The only reason goblin even feels fleshed out is because we've had three movies with Harry Osborn. Mm-hmm. Not even necessarily with like, you know, super soldier serum, Harry Osborn, but we've had three films with him to see him love and lose and, and, and be a friend and be an, you know, all of these things be a son, like all of this journey we've seen him on. 
that's the only reason he feels fleshed out. Does Sandman feel like a complete character? No. Does Eddie Brock feel like a complete character? No. Does the symbiote feel like a complete character? Absolutely not. So what actually does does the symbiote being there and us getting it's literally about 20 minutes that Eddie Brock really? has the Venom symbiote on. It's about 20 minutes because I paused the movie to see. What does it add to the movie? How much better would this movie have been if it focused just on New Goblin and then go ahead and introduce Sandman and, and let and let Harry kind of be redeemed at the end? I, why do you actually need Venom in this movie? Yeah, no, and it's been it's been documented and Raimi has talked about how there was immense pressure from the studio to include Venom. He did not want to do it. Uh, he's also expressed regret for the way that he handled it. Um, cause he kind of self-sabotaged it in his own words, um, for having to include Venom in this movie. And, you know, first of all, you have him in this movie. Number one, his voice is terrible because it's just Topher (laughs) Grace's voice. He sounds ridiculous. Constantly, you have to peel back. Um, You know, the symbiote peels back to reveal his face and his, I I don't know, his like butter-stained vampire teeth that he somehow developed (laughs) from the symbiote. It's just... (laughs) It's it's so baffling the choices that are made, and you know when Sandman and Venom first meet up, Sandman's just chilling in some random alley, and Venom swinging through, and he's like, "End of the line, Spider Man." Venom, you know, it, it appears that it's Venom, and then it's like, "Oh, that's why I've been looking for you." Well, who was looking for who, and why was Sandman just chilling in this random alley? Like, it makes no sense that the two of them meet up. And Venom just already knows everything about Sandman as though he had access to his Wikipedia page. Right. It's like he just spouts, hey, here's everything I know about you. Yeah. It's how, you know, right. He he knows everything about him. And uh, to me, it's not it's not an acceptable answer to say, oh, well, it's the symbiote. It knows because of Peter. Like it's never established. Peter didn't know like at all. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Peter doesn't know that he's trying to help his daughter. It's not like he was like, so when this guy killed my uncle, why was he trying to rob that money? Did he want to buy a car to impress a girl too? Like, (laughs) like there's nothing there that indicates any reason for that. It's, I do, I'm sorry, I do want to pause and just say it's hysterical to me that Brock goes to church and prays to God to kill like Peter Parker. Because again, like, wh- where is this? Who wrote that? Who who wrote Eddie Brock goes into church and says, I'm here to ask God for one thing. Please kill Peter Parker. And let's talk about his uh, his laser eyesight because if if that's what happens when, like, let's say you get LASIK eye surgery, I, I'm going to go get it because there's no way he sees Peter Parker at the top of the bell tower. Like, yeah, he recognized him right away. And when what's weird. So let's talk about the top of the bell tower there for a little bit. Um, why exactly? So we, the audience, knows that Venom is susceptible to two things, fire and noise. We, right. we know that. Peter doesn't know that. So why is he at the bell tower using the bell to get the symbiote off of him? Like, that just seems weird. The whole thing with Dr. Connors just kind of 
magically being able to learn a lot about a symbiote and what it is just by looking at it through a microscope. Like that whole thing just seemed weird and just seemed like here, we just need to move the story along. So we're just going to have a guy that eventually becomes the lizard tell you everything about how symbiotes work so that the audience understands the rules we're using for this universe. It, and that's why I say I, I actually feel like this movie would have been a lot better if they didn't do Venom. Venom. Right. How does he get do the piece of the symbiote, by the way, Rob, really quick? How does how does he take a piece of the symbiote to bring it to Connors? Because if the symbiote was struggling as hard as it was when he was trying to peel it off, how did it just how does Peter have a sample of it to bring to Connors? Because that's not how it works at all. Like there's so many things that just don't make sense about the symbiote, about Venom. And that's where, again, caving to the studio pressure, fan pressure, if they would have made a fourth Spider-Man film and done Venom properly. I'm not saying you have to do like the whole Secret Wars thing where, you know, Spider-Man gets, you know, his costume gets destroyed. He finds this weird room that just 3D prints a new costume for him and it ends up being the Venom symbiote. Like, we don't need that necessarily, but I would like something a little bit better than, oh, hey, look, a meteorite that just happens to land near the only superhero in this universe, and, and now it's just going to attach to him. Cool. Right. You guys will go with this, right? You, you won't? Oh, please? No, you still won't? Oh. Because they, it's not like they didn't have a setup in the second movie for why they would be going into space. I mean... Miss yep. Pin, Miss Pinball of Relationships, Mary Jane, was engaged to the man who goes up into space and in most of the Spider-Man lore brings the symbiote back with him. Yeah, there's so many other ways that they could have done. Like if they would have thought about this for like even even like from the start of their workday until like lunchtime, I think they could have come right. up with about 17 <laughs> options that were better than than what we got for how they introduced Venom and what they wanted to do with him. I, they could, they should have just picked, keep new goblin in there. I like that redemption story. I like, I like, I like Harry really as a character throughout this whole series, but, but pick one or the other Sandman or Venom and, and, and do that character, give that character truly uh, enough to work with Uh, trying to spend the movie talking about three different villains. It just doesn't work. Um, and none of them feel really threatening. I, I should say not none of them, because I, I, I do think to some extent New Goblin does feel threatening, and there's there's something real there because he knows the, the triggers that will get to Peter. Um, and I just, yeah, two villains. Yeah. Don't go to three. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I will say I'm going to make two points here. Number one, um, well, three points, actually. Number one, Sandman's creation, I think, is really cool, even though the scene before he is inside, you know, the pit and the machine where, you know, I'm sure these scientists have practiced and calculated and done all this stuff for hours upon hours upon hours to just be like, oh, I'm sure it's a bird. It'll fly away when we fire up the machine. Like, <laughs> I feel like you just wouldn't leave that up to chance. But yeah. You know, like not one single person notices a grown man falling into the experiment. Like security and safety procedures seem a little lax at this facility, don't they? Right. Like why, if that's what's happening, like why would there not be a fence around that? So nothing could fall into it. Like it's (laughs) so that's really odd, but I will say like 
him becoming Sandman and the music when he starts to like actually be able to form. I think his theme is really well done. Um, the real hero of this movie is that damn locket. Somehow it manages to, he manages to find it in the sand. He manages to find it in the river. It just continues to flow with him, even though he's not a solid form. Um, like we should like, find out what that thing's made of. Cause right. I'm pretty sure that's, I'm pretty sure that's what Peter's exoskeleton is. Right. Because he's still, he still bounces off a lot of walls, a lot of cars and doesn't die. I, I wanted to say that that was my third point is you get to the battle with him and with him and new goblin in the beginning, which I'm sorry, I think is some really bad CGI, but at one point, Harry literally has him by the feet, drags him across a building, breaks brick with this man's body, throws him through two planes of glass. And Peter's just like, like he's giving Harry CPR after he knocks him out. Like his bone, <laughs> like his bones aren't broken. He got, you know, sorry. He got cut by his, um, like arm claws. And he's just like, Harry, Harry, like, dude, you just broke a building with your body. Like, I'm sorry. A spider is not surviving that. Like, your bones are not that strong where you're just okay. Yeah. And that's unfortunately been throughout all three of these movies. We've seen that. And it's, it's once again, it's just one of those things where you see it, you recognize that that doesn't work and it pulls you out of it. You, you, some of your willing suspension of disbelief disappears. And for some people it might disappear a lot like it does for you and me. And for others, it's just kind of like, Oh, that's kind of weird, but it still takes you out of the movie. It, every time you stop to have to critique something that's happening in a movie, you become aware that you're watching a movie and, and some of the escape disappears a little bit uh, of, of being pulled into this world. Um, and I think that's where some of the great films of all time, I mean, just thinking about another trilogy, think about Lord of the Rings. How often when you're watching Lord of the Rings, you get pulled out of the experience. Like you, you just don't like you're locked into the experience the whole time. And when you see things like this, where he just takes like no damage at all until he gets stabbed with, you know, whatever, um, you know, in each of the three films, you just go, wait, how does, why, huh? And it pulls away the fun of the, of watching the movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I want to pull some dialogue too. So he has the fight with Harry. He gets his, you know, random amnesia where he doesn't remember (laughs) his plotnesia. Right. He, he remembers the Butler's name. He doesn't remember if he has girlfriends, not girlfriend, girlfriends. Um, but who wrote the dialogue that she's like, you, the nurse comes in after Peter and MJ, you know, visit him. And she's like, you have some very lovely friends. He's like, they're my best friends. I would give my life for them. Who just asked that? Like where, where, where does that, where does that come from? And you know, what's funny is like, you kind of, you probably forgave that the first time you saw this movie 
Um, but on on subsequent rewatches, uh, let's just go ahead and just say James Franco is really good in all three of these movies, and he's particularly good at this. I want to say this might be the most screen time he gets out of the three of them. I, I think, I think it is. I, I, I don't have like a stopwatch where I went through and did it. It just feels like I see him on screen more in this. Yeah, um, definitely. And it's, it's sad because it's like, it's just such a shame that he turns in such a good performance and such a crap movie. Cause he's been consistently really good. I mean, delivering absolute dog crap dialogue and somehow almost making it work. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, let's not forget, he probably has, you know, I mean, for a long time and, and still he's got a, a meme with the how's the pie. It's so good. Um, like that's hysterical, but also too like w- <sighs> movie trope. He meets Peter in the, the cafe and he tells him that he's with Mary Jane and he was there for her and everything else in between. So they have the conflict, but like, in all honesty, where does Peter think he goes? Where, like he doesn't vanish. Like I just imagine Harry, like crawling across the ground being like, don't tell him I'm still in here. (laughs) Or he's like, Oh God, there's gum on the floor. This is awful. Like, right. Like this is a a $3,000 suit. Oh no. Like, honestly, where does he go? Like, why would they, why would you do that? Like he, he's super strong. He doesn't have super speed. (laughs) He's he's clearly got super healing, but he doesn't have like teleportation. That's not one of the goblin powers. Right. And it's just, it's so bizarre. And, (sighs) you know, speaking of bizarre, like, okay, so. Eddie Brock's character like has some weird obsession after going on one date and getting coffee with Gwen Stacy, who I don't know. I I don't think she's brings anything to this movie. She's part of a stupid scene where again, like honestly it's before Peter even has a symbiote. Like what is he thinking when he tells Gwen to kiss him? Like, I'm sorry. I don't care how many people are chanting. Like he's still Peter Parker and he knows Mary Jane is there. Like I can't think of any scenario where he should logically be like, yeah, go ahead. Plan a kiss on me. Like this is totally cool. It's completely out of character for Peter. Um, It adds nothing to the movie. It, it, it creates tension that doesn't need to be there. That could have been done in so many better ways. Um, Gwen Stacy played by the way, by Bryce Dallas Howard, who you kind of forgot was in this movie. And you kind of forget that that's her because man, that wig or whatever they did with her, with her hair really completely changed. And that's kind of one of the fun things about revisiting a couple of movies that are several years old is you see, you see, I don't want to say like cameos of, of actors that you recognize from other things, but like, Emily D. Chanel was in the last, uh, was in the second one. Um, you, you kind of forget like, Oh wow. She's like famous now. She was, she had a TV show for a while. Like there's a whole, <laughs> bunch right. of, there's a whole bunch of people that are in this movie, um, that you kind of forget like later on had, you know, pretty good careers and stuff like that. Um, so that, that's one of them, but yeah, there's, and you almost kind of wonder if the introduction of Gwen Stacy was, if that character was removed altogether, 
all together. Does that make this movie worse or better? Like you pull all of her scenes in here out. Right. Like, cause also too, like she makes the, when Peter is going to try and propose to MJ at dinner, like, uh, I'm sorry. She comes over to say hi to Peter. Why is she rubbing? Like if she knows Mary Jane and Peter's mentioned her, I don't think anybody who was like, Oh, I've heard so much about you. Like is then going to like shoulder massage her boyfriend in front of her. Like, well, and on top of that, she gets mad at him for she's your lab partner. You've never said a word about it. Listen, my wife can't name most of the people I work with. Like she can't tell me she can tell the names of a couple people, but like she couldn't say the name of every single person I work with. Like how how the hell is is Mary Jane expecting Peter to mention every single person that he shares a desk with? It's just right. lame. Right, exactly. Like it's just again, it, it's forced drama for the sake of forced drama, and you know, again, like Mary Jane is the one who pulls James Franco in. Like, well, I say James Franco. Like she pulls Harry in for a kiss, and I guess it makes sense because she witnessed Peter kissing Gwen Stacy. Um, but it's just like, there's so much manufactured conflict that it doesn't like that part of it between Peter and MJ, like it doesn't feel real until Harry gets his memory back and is like, not like you're going to set up Peter if you want him to be, which again is like just such a cliche, like movie trope. I'm going to go after his heart first. Like, okay, right. We've already well, done that like twice. Right, but, like, if you want Peter to live, you're going to do this. So while she's on the bridge, like, hey, Harry got his memory back. He knows you're Spider-Man. He wants to hurt you. He's telling me to break up with you. All right, I'll fight him. Like, what? Great. Like, not even a, not even anything to tip him, like, something's off. Like, she just, she goes for it. Like, she, like she's trying to audition for the biggest part of her life that she right. hasn't been able to hold down yet. She plays the best acting job of MJ's entire life and in no way tries to tip him. Something's off. You need to look into this further. Right. And it's just, by the way, the comic book MJ would 100% have done. Right. She would have actually stood up to Harry. Like (laughs) she would have probably cold cocked him and been like, do something. Right. Right. Like exactly. You and me, let's go outside right now. We'll see who's standing. Like, but no, like, <laughs> you know, like it, it's just un, it's unbelievable. Um, so I do actually think in, in kind of saying something good about some of these, these, the early moments in this movie between MJ and Peter actually feel like they kind of work a little bit. Yes. And again, most of the stuff that works in this movie, most of it is front loaded. It, it's, it was actually really pleasant to see some of their interaction work well. And we've been waiting two whole movies for something that we actually like between the two of them. Because remember, we questioned um, if if those two actors really had any chemistry together. And and I largely believe it's just mostly bad dialogue that that made those scenes not work as well. But I think the beginning of this film showed that there could have been really good scenes throughout this series uh, between those two if they just would have been given something better to say. Yeah, I, I think there's again, it's pretty front loaded and 
I, I will say one thing that I don't think is front loaded. It certainly starts early, but I really feel the connection between Aunt May and Peter. I think that's very mm. well done going from the first movie to him admitting in the second movie and her forgiving him for his role in, you know, why he why Uncle Ben was in the spot that he was in to get robbed in the first place, her telling Peter about, you know, how Ben proposed to her, which I I will say sidebar, I think it's a real jerk move to wake up your what, 80-year-old, you know, aunt um at like what does he go there like t- midnight like he wakes her up and he's like why does he go <sighs> i have to tell you something it's about mj like you literally yeah. are like you're literally like implying that something bad has happened there and you're like i'm gonna like this woman is 80 years old you don't show up at her house at midnight and then start to act like mj is hurt like what are you doing peter um yeah, but like, and the, those things don't make a lot of sense. Um, and, they, and this happens in TV and, and film all the time, mostly because the kinds of conversations that people show up to each other's front doors to have, people just, they do it over text now. Like, they don't even call each other. They just do do that right. by text. But you got, I guess it's it's better storytelling to have them face to face. I kind of want to just talk about the scene where she gives him her ring. I found that to be a very effective scene. I, I really... Oh, 100%. And I actually, I kind of recommend if if you're listening along with us and you're you're getting excited about No Way Home, like like we are, um, and you you're going to make a decision to rewatch these films, watching them back to back to back, or you know within a similar amount of time, you know within a, within a week or two of each other, I, I think that scene works better when you've seen the first two movies somewhat recently. Um, I, I yeah. think that's one of the benefits benefits of the binge. Yeah, no, uh, a- absolutely. Their relationship is really well through this movie when she comes to see him and she's like, I didn't hear from you. Like, did you propose what's going on? It's subtle. It doesn't take up a lot of screen time, but those two, you know, again, and because maybe we've watched these so close together, it works very well. It does feel like a continuation and a relationship that has been built over you know, these last couple of years with him, you know, growing in front of her and getting a job and moving out and, you know, them moving on from Uncle Ben's death and her forgiving him for his, you know, supposed role in it. It all works very, very well. And I do like those, the, the two of them and their chemistry in the scenes that they have together. I think it works very well. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you one other scene that, hits me different in 2021 than at any other point that I'd watched this movie. Um, I think, like I said, I think I've, I've not seen this movie prior to this more than three times. Um, I absolutely have not watched this movie again since the passing of Stan Lee. Oh, I, I said that too. When he comes out. So listeners, if you're just kind of listening in, as opposed to going back and rewatching, which by the way, I don't blame you. There's, there's a lot of spider films. So we're, we're, we're spider binging for you. You can just listen to the recaps. You don't have to go rewatch it. We're going to make sure you know everything you need to know. Um, When, when Stan Lee has his cameo and he says, and this is the verbatim line, 
you know, I guess one person can make a difference. That kind of hit me in a certain way, Matt. How did how did you feel about that? I'm I'm not kidding. It it tugged at my heartstrings. It's doing it right now because yep. in in this moment and with his passing, all I could like all I could think of was the actual person, like the actual Stan Lee. Yes. Like and, and I know other people yes. had hands in it and had creative and he had creative help, but like again for you know, Rob, for you and me, I'm sure for a lot of people that are listening, and I'm sure more so than even you and I have, like these characters and some of these, and not just Spider-Man, these comic book characters in general, you're talking Superman, you're talking Batman, you know, everybody in between, these characters mean something to people. They really do. It's not just, oh, it's cool to watch this. Like, you have heard people, you know, you have, you know, make-a-wish kids that do not have any time left, and they want to meet Star-Lord or Captain America in person. Things like that. And it's just like, it, it does. It hit me that, like, this guy who is now no longer with us. And it's not like I ever knew him. You don't know him. I've never met Stan Lee. I've never done anything, but like what he did. And let's not forget that they told him Spider-Man was dumb when he first introduced the concept of Spider-Man. Like he was told this will not work. And look where we are now. We are on the verge of maybe no way home like if it wasn't for COVID, I have no doubt this would be the biggest movie ever in box office because look at how it crashed websites and is outpacing Endgame for pre-ticket sales in the COVID era. Like, yep, I, I have no doubt we're we would be on the verge of Spider-Man being the biggest movie ever in history, and this man gave that to us. He gave me a reason to have this show. He gave me a reason to be sitting here with you today talking about this. He gave us a reason to find a friend in, I'll give another plug to Harrison in the basement binge, who's thousands upon thousands of miles away, a reason to connect. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to say anything better than than really what you just said. You know, you know, I guess one person can make a difference. It it really hit me how much that one man made a difference, you know, and I didn't I I probably didn't think of it in the in that way at the time of the cameo because he was still alive and I wasn't right. necessarily thinking about him in, in those terms. But holy cow, what a difference this one man has made on our culture. Matt, I'm going to I'm going to give you four names of people that I think have been among the most influential people in pop culture. And you tell me if you can think of anybody who's been more influential than these four names I'm about to give you. Ready? Stan Lee, George Lucas, Walt Disney, William Shakespeare. Now try to see if you can, try if you can, to give me another name of a person who's been more influential on modern culture 
in just culture in general, pop culture, long lasting impact. Can you think of anybody with more of an impact than those four names I just gave you? I just compared Stan Lee to William Shakespeare. I just did that. Yeah, no. And I I don't think it's ridiculous. No, I I don't think it's ridiculous. I don't think it's far fetched. You know, I mean, this man's ideas have turned what used to be something that was laughed at if you were a fan at and you like you were the outcast and you were like, again, like you said, when, when Avengers hit, it was like, hey, we won. This is now acceptable. Like you're outside of the norm, so to speak. And certainly I, I do not mean that in the way that it sounds, because I am not here to say if you don't like Marvel or you don't like these things, like you're part of the out crowd. That is not what I'm saying. But like there was a time when it wasn't it wasn't cool to just talk about this out loud if you didn't know the person liked it because it was like oh you're a nerd like what a yep. nerd um and that now man, you're only cool if you're a nerd right right like that man <laughs> gave us all of this he gave us the number one movies at the box office all the time and some of the most important iconic characters um even if he didn't create every character that you love, like he probably didn't create rocket or Groot. Like I didn't look that up. Right. But those characters only exist because, because Stan Lee's characters made Marvel profitable and made comic books. Interesting. That medium could have completely died out. No, of course and he, DC and he took was, was important as well. Yeah. DC is very important. I'm not going to downplay Superman, Spider-Man or uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, you know, all of those characters. I'm not going to, I'm not going to downplay those, but the, the acceptance of comic books as a legitimate entertainment medium, um, an accepted entertainment medium um, is partially because the nuanced, interesting characters created by Stanley. Yeah, um, 100% agree. Um, uh, uh, just, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say, so I won't try and say anything else about <laughs> it. But, you know, we we go from that, and I, I think maybe let's, let's go a little lighthearted, a little fun. And, Rob, you, you can't tell right now, listeners, you can't tell, but what I am doing is, Rob, I'm giving you the double barrel finger point gun as I'm walking down the sidewalk listening to music because can we get in to Toby Maguire and emo Peter Parker? I need a little bit of lightheartedness before, you know, after that, that little bit of a sad segment thinking about what Stan Lee has meant. Um, what is that? What is this? Why is this? So I, how like and a, how long did he do that, Rob? I, I I'm not I, I'm not sure of the timeline. Like he walked around for days pointing at women because why did they all of a sudden they're attracted to him and then they're but then not? They're not. <laughs> and then the lady, uh, I forget her, Miss Brant, like she's ready to hop on him right at the newspaper, like right at the daily or. Sorry, the daily like why like what what is this what is this scene he gets to call the waitress hot legs like I don't understand what happened here I don't get it so I knew that this was coming of course because this is one of the things that is 
controversial, shall we say, about this movie. And I was willing to give it that, you know, I'm going to give it its its whatever. I'm going to look at it with fresh eyes. I'm not going to necessarily bring into this my my preconceived ideas of the film or my previously held ideas of the film from previous viewings. Yep, I still hate Blink-180 Parker. Still hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Um, it's one of the worst scenes in comic book movies. Um, I will accept no other alternatives. Um it, it mystifies me because you think about like you think about how many people worked on this movie or had creative input into this movie. There's some very talented filmmakers that had creative input into this movie or were solely responsible for aspects of this movie who came up with that idea or sat at a table and didn't laugh it right out of the room or read the script and said, Oh, that's gold. Let's shoot it. Like, <laughs> yeah. How- how does that survive any sort of revision at all? When, like, um, imagine Toby Maguire reading this, going, um, "Hey Sam, can we can we talk for a second? Um, right, I'm doing what? Is everything okay at home? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, do man. we need to check you into a clinic? Because." Um, Cause I think you've lost it. I I'm worried. Like, ah, oh, I just, again, like I, I did the same thing. I was like, okay, let me like, I'm rewatching this. I'm not thinking about any preconceived notions and it, the scene just starts. And uh, again, I, I, I will ask the question in terms of like a uh, time jump. So he goes to see Harry at night. Correct. Yes. They get they they get into their fight. He whips the goblin bomb at his head, which I'm sorry would do much more damage than just scarring the side of his face. Um, it would actually blow the head off. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, like his right. whole body would basically just be a wet mark on the ground. So he goes to see him at night. They get into their fight. Um, he, ooh, it stings, doesn't it? Like, ugh, cringe. But then, <laughs> like, when you start the scene of him walking around and thrusting and gyrating on the city streets, it's all of a sudden, like, it's like mid-afternoon. Where were you? Like, and you can't tell me he went home because the scene transitions to him, like, in the same clothes as he went to go see Harry with his shirt unbuttoned, which again, by the way, exposing his Spider-Man costume. Um, what was he do? Was he out all night dancing on? Uh, how long was he dancing on the street? <laughs> I mean, I can go for hours at a time personally. Like if, if I've just got a beat in me and I just got to let it out, you know, venom suit or not, I, you know, I can just right. <laughs> randomly walk down the street doing that. It, it's, it's just, it's inexcusable. This is one of those things too, where sometimes, sometimes like certain scenes or certain movies develop internet hate. And when the internet goes in on something, they go in on something and it, it gets overdone and overdone. And I was really curious, like, okay, like this scene, this scene in particular gets a lot of internet hate. And, and I was, I was wanting to know like, okay, is it actually that bad? Is it, 
have have we have we beaten this horse into the ground far enough? Um, no, actually, the internet doesn't hate this scene enough. It's actually worse than I think it gets credit for. <laughs> right, and I I love too, like I mentioned a little earlier, but I, I love how his hairstyle changes. Like his hair turns uh, color, his hair turns color, and it gets longer. And then when he takes the suit <laughs> off, like when he takes the suit off, his hair gets shorter and turns lighter. Like it, it's so bad. And then, <laughs> like he was I only just, missing the guy liner, really. Right. Like I also too. Like, like he sees the picture when he's walking on the street of the Photoshop picture of Spider Man and. Again, dialogue. Like, who wrote this? But he just, he out loud, like, looks at Eddie Brock's name and is like, I'm going to put some dirt in your eye. Like, what? What? Why? Who? Nobody who talks wrote like that. This? No, nobody so, talks like that. <laughs> it's where this movie starts to turn, like I said, I, I actually started and, and you agreed, you know, I started kind of wondering, like, do I hate this movie unnecessarily? Because the start of it, there's a lot of things happening that are pretty good. And where it really starts to turn for the worse is when they retcon Uncle Ben's killer and 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 make Sandman involved in it. And that's really where there's still some good moments that peek through the fog. But that's basically the moment where the rest of this movie is pretty crap. And, and I'd like to highlight a direct line from later in the movie, much, much later in the movie than this scene where, uh, you know, Spider-Man is, is stuck by, you know, Venom's got him kind of webbed to something and Sandman is just pounding on him. And there's the reporter who's, who's kind of just like Joe Rogan style doing play by play of, of a fight. <laughs> like, when does that happen? Um, and she says, and I quote, it's hard to believe what's happening, the brutality of it. I don't know if he can take any more. And at that moment, I'm not entirely sure if this reporter is talking about Spider-Man or the audience. So, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I don't understand that newscasting report feels like she is not e- even like it's the flattest newscaster like I've ever seen in terms of like the way they're talking about this scene. Like, he's getting crushed. He's getting beaten. And it's just like, it it literally, she might as well have a post-it note on her hand. And it's like, Oh, this is too much to witness. I can't believe what we're seeing here. (laughs) And there's like a whole audience there. Like there's super powered people, like villains and good guys, like fighting each other. And there's a crowded like street of people just like, Hmm, I wonder if I'll get a piece of building fall on me. Like, Oh man, why are they there? Right. And can we okay, so you for me this movie falls apart like very quickly. Like once it goes downhill, it goes downhill. Um and there's like there's only a few there's like minor things in between, but it's so brief that it's like, yeah, it's it it's hard to pick up any momentum. Um we took a while to talk about them last time. We're taking a while to talk about them this time. Jameson again is great. He's got high blood pressure. He's not supposed to get angry. I, I I thoroughly enjoy him again. One again, like one logistical thing that bothers me is he's at the site. He's, you know, with everybody else in the crowd. And he's like, Parker, where's Parker? I need uh, 
you, you want a job? Why would I want a job? I'm a kid. How much for the camera? A hundred bucks. Great. Grabs the camera, goes to take a picture, opens the camera and says, where's the film? And the kid says, film's extra. Right before he asked her for the camera, she's ta- what is she, she taking was- pictures <laughs> of? She's taking pictures. <laughs> like you I mean, couldn't even, it, you couldn't catch that in editing. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like a funny moment. Like Jameson gets his comeuppance, but it's at the it's at the it comes at the cost of logic. Right. Yeah, and that's part of the problem with this whole movie is it comes at the cost of logic. <laughs> like. That's the thing. And again, like, you know, Peter comes to ask Harry for help. You don't deserve my help. All right. Like, no problem. See you later. Um, Which, sorry, I need to backtrack 15 seconds because, (laughs) again, like, logically, Peter sees that Mary Jane is captured. Rob, do you know what you know what Peter Parker does? He he goes to his friend's house to look for help. (laughs) Well, before that, though. He goes to his really crummy apartment. He gets out his trundle box. And instead of like, I need to hurry. He has what? A 30 second staring contest at his Spider-Man costume. Who is that moment for? It's supposed to be Uh, for the, for the audience. It's supposed to make it feel good that he's going back to the Spider-Man suit. But like, why is he staring at it? Why is he not out the door immediately going to save Mary Jane or going to look at Harry? Like it, it doesn't make sense. You're you're not sitting there staring at your costume. Like you just saw the woman that you love. Like, you know, you still love her is in danger and you're taking a casual glare at your costume. Like, what is that? That scene's for the audience. There's a lot of things that they do for the audience that doesn't that doesn't work out at all. Um, I, a little bit later on, so right after that scene, the butler coming in and just kind of neatly <laughs> putting a bow on everything. Like I've seen a lot of things in this house, and he doesn't even give him a way. second. And, and like as soon as he says that, and I'll let you, I'll let you keep going. He's like. Uh, I've seen things in this house that I've never made mention of. He doesn't even let him finish anything else. And Harry's like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, well, I probably was still going like, <laughs> like I'm still trying way, to talk. Your dad's, your dad was a super powered villain who murdered a lot of people, tried to kill you multiple times, tried to kill a lot of people you care about multiple times. Why I didn't mention it before now. Yeah. You know, just never seemed like the right time, I guess. I don't know. Right. Like it just, Oh my God. It's such lazy, lazy screenwriting. It's so bad. Like you have to explain to me why he felt like that was necessary. Like at no point did he, he want to sit him down and explain it to him, especially when he was having some problems and things like that. Like at no point, did he feel it necessary to really explain it? Uh, yeah, I'm sure because obviously he he treats him like a not just as a as a manservant, but like as a, as a friend, as as a you know a trusted advisor in some way. Like at no point did he be like, oh, I really want to kill Spider Man. You know, I know he's responsible for what happened to my dad. Going to get that Spider Man. At, at no point did Bernard go. <laughs> um, so um, here's the thing about that, like. Um. Yeah, your dad was Green Goblin. 
Right. And like, here's the thing with that, that I'll, that I'll piggyback off of, you know, when he's like, Oh, I've seen things in this house that I've never spoken of. He walks right into that green goblin room. Is that like, uh, what the heck is all of this? Like, I've never seen this secret room before. So like, you know, that he's been preparing to be green goblin too. Like, well, he was making these death weapons and making his his snowboard, which I'm sorry, I, I've never said this like in the entire episode so far. I actually hate his look. I, I can't stand it. Um, I think it, I think he looks ridiculous. That's just my point of view. But you clearly saw him building these new weapons. You knew Norman was the Green Goblin in that entire year when he was, you know, like why Harry was waiting to attack Peter was. I guess I'll get behind the fact that like he was building a new arsenal in that entire year. You didn't think to say, Hey, well you're building all these weapons to kill Spider-Man. I'm pretty positive. Your dad killed himself and he was the green, like your dad was the green goblin. Like he killed himself. This is what happened. Like what? Well, I think there's a, I think there's a pretty obvious explanation. Um, so it was a year, right? So, yep. um, without a doubt, what he was spending that year doing was studying forensics because out of nowhere, he becomes an expert and says it was definitely the glider that stabbed him. Right. It's clear. He knows he clean, he looked at the wound and he said, Oh, you know what that is? I've seen this before. That's a goblin glider. Yep. Those are, see that, see that incision mark. There's nothing else in the entire world. No other sharp object that's ever been created by man could have created that same entry and exit. Right. It's all, the only thing we need from him is like a bad pun and taking his sunglasses off and it would have been perfect. Yeah. And like, is it supposed to be poetic? Is it supposed to be full circle that Harry dies getting stabbed by his own glider, saving Pete instead of like, Pete saving himself from green goblin. Like, uh, am I supposed to feel something for that? Like, I'm not saying I don't feel anything for like Harry dying, but like, I feel like I'm supposed to have like more of a, like, Oh, that's, that's such a great callback or that's, you know, that's such great synergy that this happened this way. I, I don't know. I don't feel anything like that. Like, is it supposed to, am I supposed to feel more, for the fact that Harry dies getting stabbed by his glider. I think part of the issue is it's just, uh, it's the most predictable turn of events possible. So when Harry turns him down, so when Peter shows up and Harry says, no, I won't help you. You already know how the rest of the movie is going to go. Is there any doubt in your mind that Peter's going to go in, he's fighting two bad guys at the same time. He's going to get in over his head. It's going to look like he's finished or Mary Jane's going to fall and it's going to look like, you know, Peter's not going to be able to save her in time and Harry's going to show up and he's going to save the day and they're going to fight the bad guys together. Like, is there, is there any permutation of a person sitting watching this that doesn't already know that that's going to happen when Peter leaves Harry's house? No, like we already know that. So fine. It's, it's predictable and it. And I think that makes it less impactful when he does die. I also think, and that's what's sad because when they do work together, they have some good moments. They they have some good bits there. They have kind of some fun fighting bad guys, which has always been some of the appeal of Spider-Man is that 
it seems like he's having a good time while he's doing this. And we never really truly get that in this trilogy of films. We get glimpses of it here and there, but we don't truly get the amount that I think most of us who are long-term fans want. But I think part of what makes his death not really land the way that maybe the filmmakers intended it to is it just seems dumb. Like we're talking about a guy who's got goblin super soldier serum in him. And when the glider or or whatever it is, is coming at Peter and instead of just like pushing it out of his way, like using his hands to like grab it or, or move the trajectory of it or whatever, he just goes with human scabbard. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to, I'm going to center body mass, just take my whole torso, put it in front, like not, not do anything else. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stand in front of it. Like it doesn't make any sense. And I think that when, when, like I said earlier, when, when you realize that you're watching something stupid, you realize you you're watching a movie, you forget to just let the movie take you along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I also like, how does Peter know? Like when he goes there, you you've handled Sandman pretty well up until this point. Like you really almost haven't had any, I I don't know, like, okay, you had a little bit of trouble with him, but like, how do you know you can't take both of them? Like, it's like he's, it's like he's had battles with both of them throughout the entire movie when he hasn't. Well, and I also think that, part of the ending of this suffers from some similar things that we see in the MCU where the hero is often fighting um, a, a villain with the similar powers that they have. But what's always weird is especially in films that include origin stories. So take Iron Man, for example, At the end of the movie, he fights Iron Monger, which is just like a, a, almost like the original Hulkbuster. And early in the film, Tony like screws up and, you know, crashes and it takes him a long time to learn how to use his Iron Man suit and his technology. And it takes the bad guy using the exact same technology precisely 0.05 seconds to figure out how to be super effective (laughs) and lethal. Like, and we see this in almost every origin story throughout the MCU. Uh, Think about uh, Ant-Man and all the struggles that Paul Rudd's character went through trying to learn the shrinking and growing technology. And then yellow jacket is like a badass, just throwing him around the train tracks. Like, um, like why does, um, why does, why does Topher Grace or Eddie Brock know how to actually like fight? Like you could say that's maybe the symbiote taking over. and, And I suppose so, because in a lot of the, a lot of the the stories with symbiotes, you know, sometimes they're they're basically like taking over for the the portion on the person on the inside really isn't driving. You know, they're just kind of like along for the ride in some cases. But still, um, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. No, it, it's the same thing. Like you always stated, it's just okay. The person that gets it second is just a master at this technology, even though the person who invented it struggled and had to go through various tests and trials and everything else in between to be like, Oh, this is how you like, okay, this is how you do it. So again, it's just, it's almost like, imagine the person who invented the piano and that person like builds it the very first one and starts like screwing around. And then, 30 seconds later, someone comes along and plays a full Beethoven symphony just out of nowhere. Like that's kind of the same thing. Yeah, no, a hundred, a hundred percent. It's, it's just 
completely void of logic. And, you know, just like some of the previous battles, this battle is marred by some terrible CGI, especially at the end when Peter starts clanging the poles together. If you ever stop and really like look at what's going on when he's slamming the poles into the ground, the seat, like the way that Peter looks is like, I'm talking horrendous. Like you pause that at any specific moment in that, that fight. And when he's getting the symbiote off of Brock, it, it, it looks bad. Like, it is insanely bad how terrible the CGI is in this last part. I guess by the, the point of the movie that we get to with this, like I kind of stopped caring <laughs> just like, Oh, this is just crap. Oh, well, like this. Yeah. Even by 2007 standards, um, the CG is pretty bad. It's I think by the time we get to that part of the movie, I've kind of stopped caring because the, the just the end of this movie is, really starts to fall downhill pretty fast. Um, yes, there are some moments that are still fun, but I think, you know, bad CG is kind of the least of this movie's problems. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's certainly not. And, you know, one of, to me, one of the major problems right here at the end is, <laughs> you know, he, Spider-Man, gets the venom venom symbiote off Brock. He throws the goblin bomb um, and destroys the symbiote. Also, it kills Eddie, not his intention. Eddie goes to jump back in to try and save it. And you see his bones, you know, the skeleton as he gets disintegrated, which again goes to show you Harry should not just have a messed up face from that bomb exploding <laughs> right next to him. Um, so again, way to follow your own continuity movie. Um, yeah. And didn't we see that in the first Spider-Man movie when Goblin attacks the, the festival right. and there's the board members that get it disintegrated takes out, into those terrible skeletons. Yeah. It takes out like six or seven of them. Um, yeah. With one bomb, <laughs> you know, so it, the symbiotes destroyed everything supposedly good. And there's Sandman who's like, huh? I was kidding, like, again, with, like, I'm not a bad guy. And I'm like, I'm sorry, your message of forgiveness and, like, maybe it's tied back into Aunt May stating, you know, Uncle Ben wouldn't want us living with revenge in our hearts. It's like, dude, like, you literally just tried to, like, granted, you didn't kill my uncle. Okay. Like, you give me this sob story about how your partner ran up on you and the gun was in your hand and you fired it and whatever. But like you did literally just try to kill me. And Peter's like, yeah, go ahead, man. No problem. Get out of here. Like I tried to kill him and tried to kill his soon to be fiance. Right. Like I, I don't buy that at all. Like I I don't care what, and like I said, maybe it's tying back to what aunt may said, but like, I, I don't buy any of that message at all. Like it, Again, it makes no logical sense to me that he's just like, yeah, man, that's cool. Like, see you later. You know, there was supposed to be a fourth one of these. And there was, you mentioned that there was alleged friction between Raimi and the studio. It almost makes you wonder, at the end of this movie, did he just stop caring and be like, whatever. Uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just here to get paid, going home. 
not doing this again. Like just really, because there definitely were things that you could have done to set off a fourth movie, pick any villain you want, but there's, there's, well, it was continuations. John Malkovich's Vulture. Which I would have loved, by the way. Like, that would have been fantastic. Um, I would have loved to have seen kind of what happened next with some of the relationships that we saw throughout this series. Um, but it just kind of makes you wonder, like, the way that they ended this, like, did Raimi just stop caring? Well, the the funny thing is, though... I will say, because I I always wondered, he was attached to Spider-Man 4. They had gone through scripts. Uh, Anne Hathaway was actually supposed to play Felicia Hardy um, in the fourth one. And then the fifth and sixth one. Which she eventually did. Right. But just as Catwoman. (laughs) Yep. Um, And then the fifth and sixth movie would have been shot back to back and would have focused on Venom. And Venom would have had a solo film in this like in this universe um the reason why Raimi ended up quitting Spider-Man 4 is because the studio was 100% telling him you have to get it out June 6, 2011 and they had been through five scripts and he was not happy with them yet and he made the decision that like I'm not going through this again with studio interference I'm not going through the pressure I'm done um but 4 was going to focus around Vulture and Felicia Hardy becoming a black cat. You know, I kind of wonder the way that they were like, how much more can you have Peter and Mary Jane on again, off again? Like, I think the natural, the natural progression was the next movie would have been, they would have been together and they would have been solid together. Like, I I don't know that any audience would have stomached them. Will they, won't they, will they, won't they like we've already done that. Um, I don't know that black cat is as interesting of a character when, when Peter isn't like when they, when they don't have that predator prey sort of, I'm a bad guy. You're a good guy. Come catch me. Ooh, it's kind of sexy cause you're bad and I shouldn't like you. And Oh, you're the good guy trying to stop me from stealing and I shouldn't like you, but I do like, I don't know. Like, I, I wonder how interesting she would have been with, without that being a part of the story. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that's, why the dynamic works good is because it's that mm, I'm not supposed to been, mm, I'm not supposed to either, but something about this makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I could have stomached another movie of MJ just being a pinball between dates. Um, yeah. Or, or just them not finally like realizing they're supposed to be together. Like how many more movies would we have needed to see them not together? Like it just, it, it would have completely stopped being interesting. Right. Exactly. So Rob, do you, you know, for me, I I'm going to just call it out. Cause I've mentioned it, I think enough. And I, you know, you've said it very well as well. Uh, my least favorite character in this movie, it, it is Eddie Brock. I don't like his portrayal. I don't like Topher Grace's um, on-screen presence. To me, he really, because he's supposed to be a main character, I really like him absolutely the least. Um, do you have a differing opinion on somebody that you don't like in this movie Like more than him? Is it maybe a tie with somebody? How, how do you feel? You know, I... I've heard a lot of the dislike for Topher Grace um, and Eddie Brock in general. I don't know. It, 
it wasn't as somebody who's been a fan of Spider-Man for a long time, as someone who enjoys the character of Venom, um, it wasn't at all what I wanted. Um, I, I actually think think I, I dislike Flint Marco as Sandman a little bit more because Ooh. it. I, I think they just, the movie just tries too hard to make him that killer with the heart of gold sort of thing, you know, like that likable thug. You know, he he does bad things, but you know they they try to humanize him. They try to make him a sympathetic villain um, to try to pull at the audience's heartstrings. Just like, nah, man, you still kill people. Like, uh, mm-hmm. killers have sick kids at home too, and they still go out and they take people's family members away from them and do terrible things. That just like get a job, man. Like. Go, go get it like a job, like a real job. Go, <laughs> right. go do that instead of kill people. Like, I don't know. Try that instead. Um, like go get a job that has benefits and then you're good. Like, I, like, I don't know. Like, why is this, why is this complicated? Um, I, the movie just spends so much time trying to, again, make him the sympathetic villain. I'm not really sure it ever works. And I'm not sure how the movie is made better by that. Fair point. I I think those are all really good reasons why he's not likable and why he doesn't work as a villain or somebody that you want to see redeemed. Like I, I don't care that he's redeemed somewhat by the end of this movie. Like I could, I could care less. Um, Well, he's not redeemed. He's just forgiven for one. That's true. Thing he did amongst a string of terrible things he's done. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. That that's right. Is there a particular scene that you really don't like in this movie? Because I know I have one, uh, like right off the bat that immediately comes to mind. But I'll let you go first. Do you have anything that just stands out? Uh, other than the uh, the emo jazz club scene, uh, I mean, that just how do you top that for least favorite scene? Yeah, I, I can agree. That is just, again, it's just so odd that that actually got filmed. And then after it got filmed, they watched it and said, okay, uh, this stays in the movie. But I also, <laughs> like, it really is weird. Like, I can't imagine a bunch of people sitting around the monitors going, all right, here's the first cut. Mm, time out. We got to do something. Like, we got to we gotta do some reshoots here. But yeah. I really dislike the crane scene where I, I don't know. They're, they're taking modeling pictures. The three girls, um, Gwen Stacy and the two other ones. Like, I, I don't know. What are they model? Is it, are they modeling copiers and paper? Like, I don't even know what's going on in that scene. Um, <laughs> like what, like what's being advertised. But I, I think the crane scene is like ridiculous because number one, the cringeworthy, Oh, um, it's Eddie Brock, sir, and uh, I'm dating your daughter. Like, get, okay. Who's about to die up there, by the way. Right. Give me a break. Number two, what is that thing doing in my shot? You can clearly see it's going to crash into the building, and all three women, like, walk to the window, like, well, let me go stare at it, and maybe we'll stop <laughs> it. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Again, logic. And then... Everybody in this movie, again, even if you haven't been bitten by a radioactive spider or you haven't taken the ecto slime, you know, from Ghostbusters to turn you into Green Goblin too, like 
Tell me how Gwen Stacy holds on to the side of the building that has no rail. Tell me how she holds on to the crane. Tell me how when Mary Jane falls out of the taxi at the end and falls onto the web, she doesn't have whiplash. How her shoulder's not ripped out of socket. How her back is not broken. Like, how does I think it you get end? a concussion from most of that? Like, just right. the, you know, the, the G-force of the stop alone, concussion. Like, how does anybody do anything in this movie, it's just so illogical to me. So I really dislike that crane scene for a number of reasons. So I, I dislike the execution of it, but in principle, I kind of like that. Not every time our hero is called into action, it has to be to go punch a bad guy. Like there's, they, they give him other stuff to do to help the city and save people. Um, so in principle, I like the idea, but the execution is piss poor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll switch over to favorite scene, favorite character. My favorite character in this is it's not going to be Harry. He's very close. I like a lot of his arc. Um, I, I like James. I like Jameson in this movie. I think he's probably one of the only real redeeming for me, redeeming qualities of this movie. There's so much I just like about it but I just get such a chuckle out of his character that it, it makes me forget for a brief period of time that I'm probably watching something that should make you go blind for staring at it. Um, <laughs> but I, I like him. Um, so I'll kind of go a little bit further instead of just picking one character, I'm just going to go with the whole daily bugle staff. Um, and I think you really get to appreciate them more when you've just done this back to back to back like we have. Um, again, you know, thinking about people that are actually bigger names now than they were at the time. Elizabeth Banks, you know, as Betty Brant is actually, you know, kind of fun. Um, by the yeah. way, Joe Mangionola is actually briefly seen at Harry's funeral uh, kind of. And a cameo, like even just like, just, I kind of like the attention to detail to bring him back just to walk past the camera, just for the briefest of moments, where if you wouldn't have been watching these films all in a row, like we have, most people would have not even realized that Flash showed up to Harry's funeral. Um, So I kind of like that detail. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You know, I kind of like that detail, but um, just the whole Bugle staff, the way that they interact with one another, the way that that dynamic works, um, just getting a chance. Like I would have, lo- I would love to see a supercut of just all the daily Bugle scenes, just from all three movies, just spliced together. And I think that'd be a good time. Yeah, definitely. I, I do appreciate them. Again, you, you can get a better appreciation for them watching this all in a row. Um, this one's a hard one for me, so I, I'm going to let you go first. But do you? Ha- what would be your favorite scene from this movie? So I I actually really enjoy the first part of the restaurant scene when we get Bruce Campbell in his uh, in his third cameo, which you kind of forget Bruce Campbell's in this series three different times as three different characters. Like it's it's kind of fun. Um, so that whole exchange, I kind of enjoy the first part of the restaurant scene where they keep thinking he's ready to propose and he has to send them away yes. uh, before that scene falls apart. It's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, that, that really is a lot of fun. I, I would say that probably uh, again, I'm going to use what you just said of before 
you know, I'll take out the logistics part of it and the logic, but I really like the creation of Sandman. Like when he starts redeveloping, he can't close his fist at first, but then like he's focusing because he wants to pick up the locket. The music starts kicking in like that scene plays. And I'm like, Ooh, when you first saw this movie, it was like, Ooh, he's going to be like, this could be interesting. He's got a really good theme. I like that. He didn't just automatically like, bring himself back together like he kind of needs to focus and i was like "Ooh, this this could be good maybe sandman's going to be interesting and you quickly realize he's not but in that brief moment of him becoming sandman i, I do really enjoy some of those parts um of that shot yeah, it's kind of fun. And what almost kind of makes me wonder, you know, we talked about in the last episode of the second one where um, kind of the real horror elements that Raimi shows that he he can do successfully well in the operation scene with uh, Dr. Octopus. You almost wonder what this scene could have looked like if he took that same approach. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a shame that he, you know, again, to his own self-admission, got really burned out from studio interference, wasn't really his heart wasn't in the project like it was with one and two because of having to put venom in there and really not wanting to do venom yet. Um, you know, he had a plan for him, but wasn't able to execute it. So it, it is really a shame to see that he was just kind of like beaten down by, you know, outside interference in the studio saying, no, you have to do this, which you would think they would have trusted him after the box office, you know, turnout for the first two movies. But as we've seen many times, studios think they know better and it usually turns out very, very wrong on the other end of it. So, you know, you never hear about it, but is there actually a moment you can think of where studio interference made a movie better? Um, it has to have happened, right? Like, but I can't, like, you never hear about that. Yeah, I just... I, I, I just, I never, like, I, I just can't, I mean, just think about all the, like, the crazy examples of ones that the don't. Snyder Cut. Right, the Snyder Cut. Even, <laughs> like, Suicide Squad. Um, you, yeah. The Fan Four Stick, because um, that's the title on the poster. It's not Fantastic <laughs> Four. Um, you know, think about the atrocity that is that movie. There's just so many examples, um, you know, for me personally, Alien Covenant, because the backlash from Prometheus that there were no xenomorphs in that movie and it caused them to completely, you know, abandon the story that was supposed to be told in the second one. I just, and that's why sometimes I think it's like, yes, it's great to listen to fans, but at the same time, you know, I, I think you have to understand that there's a time when you have to be like, all right shut up like we're we yeah. still need to see this through and go with the story that we wanted to tell and you know, just realize you're not going to always please everybody and the more that you try to please everybody usually the worse it turns out yeah you, you can't please everybody you're not the mandalorian yeah, that's that's true. Um, the, <laughs> the, the rare occasion where everybody's happy. Um, yes. <laughs> so, listeners, we're going to move on here to the last segment of the show called Roll Credits. We're going to talk about some interesting facts about the film, box office, um, 
you know, and we kind of talked about it briefly, but Spider-Man four, the vulture, Felicia Hardy rolling into five and six being shot concurrently with the venom, the venom symbiote being introduced. And Raimi was supposed to do all those. So it really is a shame that this movie really soured him. And then the, no, you have to get this movie out by this date being through five scripts. Um, it's a shame, but in the end, I mean, it looks like we're almost going to get everything that we could possibly ask for coming up here in December. Um, you know, certainly with the rumors, you know, this could be the perfect way, almost a Logan style send off maybe for Toby Maguire, certainly maybe a shot at redemption for Andrew Garfield, which I am super excited to rewatch the amazing Spider-Man movies because there's a lot of things that I remember about those movies, but it's also like the Spider-Man's that I have seen the least in terms of rewatches. So I'm really going to be interested to go back and watch these movies. Those are the ones that I'm looking forward to the most. 